we're certainly thankful that God has allowed each of us to assemble on this Sunday morning, the second Sunday in February this year, to do so in a way that it's our heart's desire to please and to glorify, to exalt and magnify the very cause and the kingdom of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's good to see certainly everyone gathered today. We know that there's much been announced by way of illness and other things, and certainly we continue to earnestly pray that those circumstances will improve. But today, for you and I, the spiritual health that we enjoy, I hope will be enhanced today as we reflect on a lesson I've entitled, God is Love. You'll notice on the wall behind me, as we reflect for the next few moments on some of these matters, these introductory thoughts will be the first ones for our consideration today. Given the greatness of God's love, it likely would be safe to say it would be hard to overstate it. It'd be hard to come to fully grips in such a way to fathom it. That's how great it is. And yet the Bible is this incredible testimony of the magnitude of God's love. And in so doing, there are some ways that sometimes you and I are at least tempted to think less of it than, than what we might. In other words, to fail to appreciate it even in the way that we could do it. Look at some of these headlines that have, have appeared at least over the years. That relates to the love of God. couple shows God's love in Afghanistan. Now that's to be commended. The work that this particular couple did in the effort to assist and to help, that's wonderful. Look at this one. For trailer park ministry, God's love is double wide. An interesting title. The point perhaps being this, the Word of God is what describes for us God's love. And we don't need slogans to help enhance it or magnify it. We don't need any particular things other than the Word of God to help us appreciate it and to strive at least to implement its meaning in our life. There are a few things that we'll note today from the Scriptures and at the bottom of that slide. Our motivation will be this. We simply want to let the verses speak for themselves. What is God's love? What has it done? And what does it mean to you and me? I hope as we conclude this sermon, even our, our lesson today, that we shall be prepared to exit in such a way that we will perhaps, perhaps not like what we have in recent days, but to understand what that love has meant to us. The first part of the lesson will be this one. Let's now turn to that passage in 1 John 4, the one that Lester read just a moment ago. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. And while you're turning there, a few comments that lead us to appreciate that passage itself. You and I know that there are many things that are attributes that are worthwhile. Patience, long-suffering, self-control, all of these are fantastic attributes and they're encouraged upon us. And yet, the inspired apostle Paul listed three that rose above the others. He said, there are about a three, faith, hope, and love. And of those three, he said, the greatest is love. The greatest of that number. And who would question the placement of faith? Who would question the placement of hope? And yet, as great as they are, there is still something grander still about love. Now in 1 John 4, this is the statement, this is the definition, this is the idea. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. At this point, God is love. That means every manifestation, every particular, every detail and every specific that are attached to the character of love in one way or another emanates from Him because He is it. One cannot speak successfully about love apart from the character of where it came from. God is love. And today, when you and I love our family members, our church family members, when we exhibit love in any other way, be it even to our enemies, we are merely behaving in a way that would be consistent with the love that is, of course, God. You'll notice furthermore on that slide that the New Testament on other occasions speaks about the nature of the love of God. We noticed it this past Wednesday evening when we cast a spotlight on the closing chapter in 2 Corinthians. There we remember that the communion of the Holy Spirit is highlighted. The grace of Jesus Christ is also mentioned. But when it came to the Father, love is the singular attribute attached to Him, the love of God. Today, we understand that somewhat about 6,000 years ago, He fashioned this earth, the universe, and all in it. And it has continued, of course, since that time, and man has made many choices, behaving in evil ways, behaving in ways that are inconsistent with the will of God. And through it all, He has loved the human family. Through it all, He has shed so wonderfully upon you and upon me the nature of the character of love. That next idea then is this development. Those who would please God, this text says, must be those who also understand love. Fathers and mothers, when we love one another, as our husbands and wives, when we love our children, when we in fact exhibit love in other ways, we are merely doing that which is consistent with the teaching of the Bible, that which emanates from God Himself. Love? That slide closes like this. The love of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 is therein stated to be something that's encouraged upon us. We seek it. Are you and I seeking it as we perhaps could? But the command that our Master gave in John 13, 34 is this, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And in John 15, 12, just two chapters forward, He pointed out that that great love to be understood, you love each other. And when we thus do that in our families, and when we even as a church family exhibit it, we are simply following in that which is of God. But to say that love is to be seen in this light is only to scratch the surface. The next point will be this rather clear and evident truth. God demonstrated His love... It is not merely a matter that was exhibited in word. It was not merely something that He stated to us. He did not merely say to Adam, I love you. He didn't merely say to David or Moses or even any of the other Bible characters, I love you. But yet you and I know today He hadn't just stated it to us, though He has stated it. He demonstrated it. Look at this. 
one of the things we see about God's love is that it was not merely a matter left in, in abstraction. It wasn't merely a matter left in the deep recesses of thought. It was exhibited. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, we have this rather interesting passage that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, and yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pause at that point. At that point in that letter to the Roman congregation, Paul pointed out beginning in verse 6, the power and the majesty of this consideration. God manifested. He commended His love. You may be interested to note what that word commend means. It literally means to show. It means to exhibit, to establish or to prove. In other words, there were concrete evidences whereby that love could be appreciated. To the church in Rome, the Holy Spirit equipped Paul to write that statement. God commendeth His love toward us. Did you notice what just preceded it? In that verse just prior to that, he says, Peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. There are occasions in this world wherein sometimes selfless and rather amazing acts for the well-being of others are noted. Someone might give his or her life voluntarily for somebody else. Now, perhaps that doesn't happen all that often outside the military, I suppose. But for someone on the spur of a moment in the particular matter of a great element in danger will voluntarily give his or her life for somebody else. And when that happens, if at least the news media become aware of it, it becomes an overwhelming international sensation. May I share the following historical record with you? We each are well aware of World War II and what some of the things were that were happening in Germany. When Adolf Hitler rose to power in the early 1930s, he put in place a particular set of activities against those whom he deemed unworthy to live and those whom his particular ministration deemed to be in that character. And so they summarily began to exterminate Lots of people. And among that number were Jews. Well over six million Jews were exterminated in these so-called extermination camps during the course of World War II. Auschwitz was perhaps the most famous of the, the places wherein that kind of thing happened. Can you imagine the heinousness with thousands of people being put to death every day in those places? Perhaps you and I shudder beneath the thought of it, and yet the following scenario historically took place. One of the prisoners who was Jewish managed to escape. In punishment upon those that remained in the camp, those German leaders declared ten people were going to be put to death, in addition, because of the one that escaped. You can see on the slide I've listed the name. One of the prisoners who there was present at that time was this individual named Francis Gavonatich. A difficult name to pronounce, 
But that's beside the point. Here was a man, and he began to cry out because he was selected to be one of the ten to be put to death. And he began to lament and to voiceably and audibly cry, I've got a wife and children. Please let me live. Please spare my life. The Germans, of course, could care, really couldn't care less much about that. They were already killing so many, but in the presence of that time was a Catholic priest named Maximilian Kolb. He stepped forward and said, I'll die for him. Take my life for his. The Germans let it happen. The original man was spared, at least that day. Maximilian gave his life for another man whom he'd never known before. Someone who he basically didn't know at all. And yet, based on his pleas, his cries, the circumstances of his life, he was touched in that moment and volunteered to give his life for somebody else. I hope every time you and I think about the cross of Jesus Christ, we think much like that. There was a being who took my place there and yours. I deserve to die because I've sinned. You deserve to die because you've sinned. And not only that, we in fact had violated the law of God at times knowing very well what God's Word teaches and I disobey it anyway. And yet Jesus allowed Himself to be nailed to a cross, allowed Himself to be so scourged and punished, He took my place and He took yours. Isn't it fair to say that these words, for scarcely for a good man some would even dare to die, but God commended His love toward us while we were yet sinners. You and I couldn't claim to deserve the blood of Christ. We couldn't claim to deserve the opportunity for heaven. We were such that we had transgressed the will of God. When you and I think back to what Maximilian Kolb had done, let's face it, we don't know what that other person had done or what kind of life he had lived. It didn't seem to matter at that moment. Maybe you and I should keep in mind that when Jesus hanged on that cross, He not only died for good upstanding people, but He died for murderers. He died for those that would commit sexual crimes. He died for those that would kidnap and those that would otherwise be guilty of various and sundry things with the hope that they might realize what He had done and that they would change their life, repent, and live as they should. 1 John 2 verse 2 says that He died for all men. That's really something to behold God's love that way, isn't it? Let's close that slide like this. John 15, 13, Jesus Himself said, Greater love hath no man than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. Jesus not only died for those that would be recognized as the apostles, but He died even for those, that Roman soldier that pierced the spear in His side. The Lord died for Him. For that man who used a hammer to pound the nails into the master's hands and feet, Jesus died for him. He died for Pilate. He died for that Jewish high priest who in fact cried out, Crucify him! The Lord even died for him. And he died for me.
I hope that each of us, then, as we recognize God is love, that means a very practical and great thing every day, doesn't it? It ought to help us strive to not give in to temptation. Because He died so that I might have a sufficiency and strength to look forward to being where He is. To close that slide like this, 1 John 3.17 urges us to also be those who demonstrate our love. Husbands, I know Valentine's Day is approaching, but the greatest thing we can do is to show our wife that we love her. To not only do it in word, now word's important. And husbands, as we do that, may we appreciate that wives, of course, will earnestly strive to do the same, not only telling us that they love us, but that they show us as well. And as we show our love to our children and others that we know, that's what God teaches us because love is to be demonstrated. Point number three. One of the things that we, in addition, discover about this great love of God is that the New Testament is very clear about the following concept. It begins at the top of this slide. I mentioned at the beginning of the lesson that isn't it true that in any case in which the love of God could be connected with something, that our world seems to automatically look upon that as wonderful and perfect and ideal. And sometimes, of course, it isn't so. But it still is true that every good thing that you and I receive ultimately comes from Him. In James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He will never have a shadow, in essence, that is cast by His turning away. His direction, His goodness, His marvelous power is exhibited toward us. But not only that, Acts 14, 17 reminds us that He has in fact blessed us with even fruitful seasons and rain from heaven. The rain we enjoy, the sunshine that comes with it, all of that is from the beneficial hand of our, of our loving Heavenly Father. But that's not the point really of this slide. It's only an introduction. All of these physical things are wonderful gifts but they are nowhere near the greatest. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. That word unspeakable means inexpressible. Words almost fail to describe the marvelous gift of Jesus Christ. Let's develop that point perhaps like this. The love of God then, specifically at least in this regard, is found in one particular place. To say that slightly differently, there is a sphere in which one is able to appreciate and to appropriate the blessings of the love of God. Now let's face it, everybody on earth appreciates the blessing of rain, but whether saint or sinner, you enjoy that. But that's not true of these spiritual blessings. For the spiritual ones, let's visit Romans chapter 8. And it's verses 35 to 39 that will be our focus. Romans 8, beginning in verse 35. The language, very touching and, all, and somewhat rather emotional. But it reads like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Let's pause at that point. Paul raises then this question, Who or what is able to separate us from the love of Christ? And then he mentions seven particulars. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. As you and I ponder those specifics, can hunger, can excruciating hunger separate me from the love of Christ? What about the sword? What if some person threatens me, I'll kill you if you offer worship to God today? What about distress? An overwhelming sickness in myself or my family? An overwhelming degree of other tribulation that perhaps comes my way? Is that sufficient to distance me from the love of God? He now goes on, beginning in verse 38, to say this, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you notice where God's love is? He said it's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Outside of Christ, the fullness and the majesty of that love will never be exhibited. Now like I say, we know rain comes to all, sunshine shines on all, but if one wants the spiritual blessings that come from God, the love fully to be seen from Him, you have to be in Christ to have it. Paul there pointed out, didn't he? We really are conquerors in all those other things because the love of God is in Christ Jesus. And as long as we are there, no matter what those other things are, the home heaven still waits us. Now that's quite a thought, isn't it? No wonder as we race through that slide, we notice these things in addition. Paul was so powerfully able to comment in Titus 3 verse 4 that when God's love appeared, it brought response in the hearts of those that were happy to receive it. I know I stand before a group for whom many also like that can be said. But doesn't that motivate us to remain faithful? Doesn't it motivate us to always want to be in that sphere wherein God's love is found? Because if we step outside it, what a fearful place that is. Because there we have not Jesus Christ as our advocate. We have not the salvation offered through Him. Let's close that slide then like this. Paul could speak about that sphere. He didn't use that word. But listen to the word he did use in 2 Thessalonians 3. Specifically, verse number 5. Where is God's love found? And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. The preposition into identifies a change of location from out of to in which one then is. These Thessalonians were directed thus from out to in. And today... That same premise, that same truth still should be our heart's desire. Every one of us who are Christians at one time were lost sinners. 
and we chose to obey the gospel, and when He added us to the church, we then had chosen to direct our hearts into Jesus Christ. And there we received His love. Our sins were forgiven. At this point, should we not then say this as the final point to our lesson today? This love of God that so far has been so wonderful to consider, this love that has brought us to think about the fact it was demonstrated and that it is the nature of God. Notice one final thought. The connection the New Testament makes to the matter of responsibility. God's love is again so wonderfully seen in Jesus, but our study begins like this. Paul could write in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now we just learned a moment ago that it's in Christ where God's love is found and yet now that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And in that description, you quickly note this. Where's that faith come from? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. And therefore, all of this works together in this way when a person is faithfully obedient to then this which is the Word of Christ, that person is able to dwell in the love of God and to receive all the spiritual blessings and all the spiritual benefits that come with it. Those things that the Master has promised. No wonder in that regard and in that light, you and I encounter this interesting command. And notice I said the word command because it's perhaps not one to be seen by many in that light. It's in the second to the last book of the New Testament, Jude verse 21. Let me read not only that verse, but the two verses that follow it. Jude verses 21, 22, and 23. As Jude wrote these words to, again, those first century individuals, it reminds us that they in many ways were directed directly to us, and it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, how do we do this? We are told, you make sure to keep yourself in this. Don't wander outside of it and don't overlook it. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. What a vision of the day of judgment, that there will be those who sadly have made a choice to remain outside the love of God, and they'll be lost eternally. On the other hand, there will be those who have kept themselves in the love of God. God will not force anybody to love Him. He won't force anybody to respond in faith to His love. But He implores, He invites, He encourages, He pleads. But in so doing, Jude wrote, Keep yourselves in the love of God. What a constant admonition for all of us that we might every day Walk that narrow and straight pathway that leads to everlasting life. Not stepping off of it, not allowing other things to distract us. No wonder this final comment is to be asserted. If we remain in that love of God, what do we avoid? It was in the verse that followed the one that we mentioned a moment ago in Romans 5 verses 8 and 9. 
Let's continue that reading. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. If we aren't in the love of God, all that we have to look forward to, if you can call it that, is wrath. The unspeakable and inexpressible horror attached to the wrath of God. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12 verse 29. That consuming fire is highlighted as we close this slide today as a final reminder and admonition for all of us. We've mentioned today many times about the love of God, how great it is, and the exquisiteness of Jesus as the sacrifice that that love sent. Would you look back with me to Luke 11 verse 42, and I think we'll all be saddened by what we read here. It was the behavior of some in that day and time who, while Jesus was walking among them, He had these words to say, "'Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees!' For ye tithe mint and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These Pharisees were those who again had access to the old law of Moses and the oracles that went with it, and yet Jesus rather point blank told them, You pass over the love of God. I submit to you it'd be entirely possible for you and I, though a person who in many aspects of life speak about and do those things pleasing, do we sadly look over the love of God sometimes? Do we ignore it? Do we neglect it? Do we fail to allow it to have the meaning and the impact it should have in our life? Jesus pronounced a woe upon they when they did that. In John 5 verse 42 there's another statement in which the Lord directly again told some others that sadly their life was not in harmony with the love of God. I hope each of us will give ourselves a rather serious examination. Is your life and mine a testimony to the love of God? Is the way that we talk and the way that we behave and the kinds of things that others see in us, is that an open book that others can read that lead them to the love of God? If so, may we continue to live that way because we're keeping ourselves in the love of God. But if that isn't so, if that isn't so, then just like they, in Luke eleven forty two, 42, we have passed over the love of God. I hope that if you need to respond today to the gospel invitation, that you will let the love of God emanate in your heart in such a way that you'll almost race down this aisle. And it's not the fact of the elders or myself. That is wholly unimportant, at least at this moment. What's important is to be right with God. What's important is to be recipient and to be in that sphere where His love is found. Because none of us know when death is coming. None of us know when this earth will be no more. Either of those events could happen very quickly. And at that point, it's the judgment. Am I ready? I must be in God's love then. If not, it's too late. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, describes that the Lord will serve as our trial lawyer that day. And if we're in His love, He will be able successfully to say to the Father, He or she has been forgiven of everything. 
based on my sacrifice and their faithfulness to my blood, let him or her enter into heaven. But our lawyer won't be successful that day. The devil will win that case if we aren't covered by the blood of Christ. Today, if you're not in the love of God, there's an opportunity to make it so. Because Jesus has told us what we must do. If you've never been baptized into Christ, then the steps before that are these. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If we could be of assistance in that way today, it'd be our delight. If you have at one time been faithful to the Lord and you were in His love for a while, but you've chosen to open the door and exit on your own, you now are outside in the wilds of the desert and the devil has free reign with you. Don't you want to come back in? We sometimes pray about the ark of safety. There really is an ark of safety. 1 Peter 3 describes it. It's the church, and if you're not in the love of God, you're not in it. Today, if we could help you again to be reinstated to that place, we'd pray for you. You you need to confess and repent of those things, and Jesus will gladly welcome you back in. Today, if we could be of help, as any of us would wish to respond to the love of God, because God is love, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.